Is there a pain that is comparable to my pain? On the surface, that's a uh, difficult uh, thing to contemplate. If, uh, God forbid, that people suffer tragedies, suffer painful events, they are comparable. Each one has their own individual uh, outlook upon it. But in general, death, destruction, sickness, tragedy, failure, that's a universal, unavoidable consequence of life. No one passes through this world and escapes it. There naturally are different degrees and different circumstances. So why does the Novi say, Hayesh Machov Kemachovi? Is there a pain like my pain, a suffering like my suffering? The uh, simple answer is that somehow the Jewish people are unique and that our history is unique and that only in recognizing the fact that it is unique you know, do we begin to appreciate what has occurred. So you hear today bandied uh, about many uh, times situations that are always comparable to the Holocaust. Uh, the president of the Ukraine uh, stated openly that what Russia is doing in the Ukraine is a Holocaust. The uh, president of Russia said that he came to denazify the Ukraine. But what's going on between Russia and the Ukraine has nothing to do with the Holocaust. And has nothing to do with the events of World War II. And in this uh, cheapening, of the idea of the Holocaust, of making out of it, uh, I think there was one terrible extreme example of it that uh, I heard a few months ago, 
when we face the tragedy of uh, the Major League Baseball lockout. And one of the sports commentators said, you know, it's like a Holocaust. So the word, the word has lost all meaning. Like many words in our time. The words have no meaning. They're just expressions of sound. But they really don't mean anything to anybody anymore. Liberal, conservative, progressive, democratic, has no meaning. It's been stripped of any definition. And therefore, the words are almost worthless. That's why the Novi wrote the Gilaseva. Because he wanted to make words count. He wanted to make words that would last thousands of years, have an effect upon people who did not witness what he is talking about, and perhaps do not even know what he is talking about. But that the words themselves should have resonance. And that is what Chazal say that this Megillah of Echa was written by a prophet, by a Novi, by someone who had divine assistance in choosing the words. Because if words are to remain eternal and have meaning, they must stem from divinity. It is not within the human spirit alone to create eternity. The human spirit has to attach itself to something that is eternal. And it's very hard to do. So I, Baruch Hashem, am an old man. Unlike you, I lived through the Second World War. I had first cousins, uncles and aunts that were destroyed in the Second World War. I watched and heard living witnesses who came back after the war. To put it mildly, the Holocaust never left my mind since I was six or seven years old. One of the first English words I was raised in a Yiddish-speaking home, and when they didn't want me to understand, they spoke Hebrew. That's what I learned Hebrew. And in public school, I learned English. We had uh, 
public school then was uh, was public school. So uh, my parents uh, they. Uh, my father lost uh, brothers. One of the first English words that I remember as a child was the word affidavit. Maybe that's why I became a lawyer later in life. But my parents were trying to bring to the United States my uncle and aunt and cousins. He was a Roman Lithuania. And in order to do so, uh, you had to provide affidavits, which were sworn documents that said that the immigrant would not be a burden upon society, that there was a, a job waiting for him, that he would never apply for Social Security that he didn't want any benefits, that people would take care of him. Things have changed, but that's the way it was. And I remember they kept on talking, we need an affidavit, we need an affidavit. I didn't know what an affidavit was. I had to go to law school to find out. But when one of your first English words is affidavit, so then somehow the Holocaust became more real than just an empty word. Russia does not want to take 50 million Ukrainians and kill them. Ukraine does not want to exterminate 140 million Russians. I don't know what bugs either side here, but that's not our pain. Our pain was that civilization, at the height of its progress, was hell-bent to destroy the Jewish people. It's very difficult to contemplate why. It probably was the most self-destructive act that civilization ever visited upon itself. Germany itself, for instance. It was all the German scientists that built the American atom bomb and the American rocket program to go to the moon. That's all Germans, and they were German Jews. And they weren't much as Jews either. They didn't wear a Benetton's film every day. Why would he destroy that? Why would he evict them? 
Why would he send Einstein into exile? Why would he take the great Berlin Philharmonic, which is one of the leading symphony orchestras in the world? One third of its musicians were Jewish. Why would he kill them and destroy them? He throw them out of the symphonic orchestra. The survivors made the Israeli symphonic orchestra. Why do people do that? What motivates a world to behave that way? philosophers, in professors, in institutions of higher learning. Even in the absoluteness of the necessity of secular studies. I have a PhD, I have a degree in law, I went to many universities. One third of all the commandants of the Nazi death camps possessed either a PhD or an MD. How does that happen? If you take the Hippocratic Oath, first duty of anyone in the medical field is not to do harm. We are living through it, right? This Huan uh, laboratory financed by medical research killed billions of people. she says. Who cares what the Israeli medical establishment says? The Holocaust discredited all of that. Made a mockery of it. The 19th century was built upon the ideas that this world is getting better and better. Advances in technology, longevity of life, comforts, broader education, 
world is getting better and better. The 20th century disproved that. The world got worse and worse. The 21st century is pretty dangerous too. Your words bandied about today, uh, tactical nuclear weapons, you know, they talk about it like uh, toys in a toy store. The Torah tells us. Man left to his own devices is evil, is selfish, is violent, is capable of anything. And if there is no veneer of some sort of morality, then this is what happens. And you can take a million and a half children under the age of 12 and destroy them. If you take babies and smash their heads against the wall without any compunction. And that's what the Novi said, think about my pain, about my weakness, about the true exposure of what human beings are capable of. The Gemara says, if someone comes and tells you that there is a great deal of wisdom, technology, progress in the world, Tommy, believe them. There's a Sorbonne, and there's an Oxford, and there's a Harvard, there's Silicon Valley. Tommy, you can believe all of that. But that there is any morality in the world, don't believe it. That's stark truth. It's not expressed. I don't know if you've ever heard a speech like this before. I would imagine that you went through 10, 12 years of Jewish education and no one ever talked to you this way. But uh, in my opinion, this is the stark truth. This is the only way that you can view life. The only way you can view what the Jewish people are here for. We're here for Torah, because Chachma is insufficient. <coughs> the world will never be saved by PhD theses. And that's a bitter lesson. 
It's a lesson that most of the world still is not willing to accept. And therefore we're shocked at things that happen. How could it happen? Well, it can happen very easily if you abandon all principles, all disciplines, all sense of holiness and godliness. If you don't believe in anything bigger than yourself, you don't have any <clears throat> perspective about the past. And not only can it happen, but it will happen. And that's been proven throughout history over and over and over again. So what's our task? few hundred gathered in this room are going to change the world. What are we going to do? So the first lesson is that the Jewish people are in the struggle. No matter what. Thirty-seven hundred years of Jewish history, and we're still here. And just think about that. Everybody else is gone. There are no Babylonians or Greeks or Romans. The Catholic Church is a shambles. Christianity is falling apart. Islam is self-destructing. And you're studying Shoshanah Nachisapur? Think about it. I have a neighbor of mine in Muncie, a very fine woman. Holocaust survivor. And uh, she was a friend of the family, especially of my wife. And she was very, uh, her family in America became very successful, wealthy, they were observant. And she kept on telling me she wants to go back to Poland to her hometown. She wants to see her old house. And she wanted to know my opinion. Uh, the wisdom of rabbis lies in not giving their opinion. But she persisted. Oh, man, I'm rabbi, should I go back? Should I go back? So once in a moment of weakness, I said, why are you going back? Well, what, what are you going to gain? And she said to me uh, the words that rabbis are accustomed to hear. Rabbi, you don't understand. And she went back. 
And uh, after a few weeks, she returned to Muncie. I said she was a neighbor a few houses down. So my wife and I went to visit her to welcome her back. So she said to me, uh, again, words that rabbis don't often hear, Rabbi, you were right. I said, what happened? She said, you know, I went to my house and my Polish neighbor is living in the house. And she saw me and she said to me, Bella, you're still alive? And I turned around and left. That's the question. Bella, you're still alive? How did that happen? How six million got killed, we understand. million and a half Armenians got killed. We walked down here in the old city and got a memorial. The rest of the world doesn't even know about it. We didn't know how six million got killed. How did we survive? How come Bella is still alive? Even though somebody else is living in her house. So that's one lesson. And another lesson, there's a book uh, called Treblinka by a Jew by the name of Jules Steiner. It's a very difficult book to read. And uh, can interfere with your sleep. But I've read it a number of times. And it's the story of Treblinka, which was the Nazi death camp that killed the 350,000 Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto in four months. And uh, he describes in the book that on the entrance to the gas chamber, uh, the Nazis, the Germans, had hung a uh, parochus, a tapestry, a curtain that they took off of the Norman College. They took off the art that contained the Torah. And on the tapestry was embroidered the verse, This is the gate unto God. Let the righteous enter therein. And that was the last thing that 350,000 human beings saw before their death. 
I read that. And uh, it just so happened that I mean, then I was in over Miami Beach. And a person came to me and he said he wanted to make a donation to our synagogue. What did our synagogue need? Well, synagogues always need, but it's not easy to find what they need. But he was talking in material terms. So I told him, you know, you should have a parochus. You need a tapestry in front of the ark. He said, oh yeah, but do you have one? I said, no, we need one. And what should it say on it? I told him, unto God, let the righteous enter there. And every day when I walked into shul and I saw the parochus, I thought to myself, we are a remarkable people with the parochus back up. Now maybe that was with the bus at that time. that is supposed to be a mockery of everything now says what it's supposed to say. So that's the second question. Who put the parochus back up? When the great portion of the Jewish world is falling off the cliff, It doesn't know what happened, it doesn't know where it's going, and it is involved in all sorts of nonsense. Someone has to put the barrels in bed. And maybe that's why we all are here. The Lord has a special concern that we should do our job. And he gave us opportunities. He gave us this wonderful little country. He gave us independence. He gave us affluence far beyond our wildest dreams. So what are you going to do with it? Put the parochus back up. And in conclusion, I'll tell you another story. There was a Jew that I knew in Los Angeles, meaning Beverly Hills, by uh, the name of Spiegel. And Spiegel was a Hungarian Jew. 1944, went to Auschwitz with his wife and his five-year-old son. Spiegel and his wife survived the child at night. Spiegel then came back to him. was able to come to America. They had a good family in America, children, grandchildren. 
became a very wealthy man. He owned banks and real estate. He lived a good life in California. I knew him peripherally, but I knew him. But he was always haunted by his five-year-old children. He wanted to somehow make a memorial that would befit his son. So he went to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum there in Yerushalayim, and he gave them uh, quite a few million dollars. And they constructed what they call the Children's Museum, which is uh, a separate building devoted to the memory of the one and a half million children destroyed in the Holocaust. And there's a picture of his son, the five-year-old son, on the outside of the building. It's dedicated by Steve. And he gave them another large amount of money to maintain it. So I was going to happen to be in Jerusalem maybe it's uh, 50 years ago, maybe more. And I saw in the paper that this is the day of opening the museum, the children's museum, and that Spiegel's going to be there to open it. So I figured I'll go and I'll see what Spiegel has done here. Now I've been to Holocaust museums all over the world. I can tell you exactly what they look like. There's a room full of hair, there's a room full of shoes, there's a room full of toys, there's a room full of suitcases. I know what I'm going to see. When I got there, I realized that that's not what I'm going to see. You walk into this uh, building, and there's an enormous room, larger than this room. But it resembles this room because it also has a very high dome, a very high ceiling. And the room is pitch black, dark, so dark that you cannot put one foot in front of the other without holding on to the rail. But after a minute or two, your eyes become somewhat more accustomed to the darkness. And I noticed that on the ceiling there are a million little pinpoints of light. Like little stars in the firmament. And then a uh, tape recording begins to play. And the recording does nothing but recite names. Hannah Greenberg, three years old, or 
also. I'm going to call eight years old, sorry, Kind Greenberg, ten years old, Milner. Name after name after name. Until you can bear it no more. I went out of the museum into the blinding views on the subway. And for the first time I thought to myself, you know, my name is not a bad thing. I'm of the age. They certainly meant me too. But I'm sitting in Chicago at the Cambridge. But my name is not on the tape. If my name is not on the tape, then I have an obligation to do something. To be somebody. To help to renew the Jewish people. None of our names are on the day. That lays upon us a challenge that makes us special. So that's the other lesson of the whole. called the Sridei Kherat, those who survived the sword. That's who the Jewish people are. And that's our challenge. So you should not think of yourselves as mere individuals of a large group of people. Thank you.